Thank you, Dan, and thank you to our student choir who led us this morning. I would say our vocal future looks good. It's going to be a lot of good choirs in the future of First Baptist Church. Thank you guys for, for leading us. Well, the new emphasis in discipleship over the next four weeks will be focusing around four words that we hope shapes your walk with Christ. Abiding, becoming, connecting, and doing. Today we begin with the first of those words of discipleship, the word abiding. Our, our text this morning is that famous text in the Johannine Gospel, John 15. Now abiding is not a word used very much in the English language anymore, and so we might retranslate that for a moment to mean to be at home with, to take up residence with. I like this one the best, to stick with Jesus, to stick with Jesus, to abide with him is to make your home with Jesus. Now, throughout Jewish history, the image of the vine has been used as a symbol of God's people, a symbol of ancient Israel. In fact, it is on the furniture and it's other places in this room, a symbol of being the vine being God's people bearing, bearing fruit. In fact, at one point in the history of ancient Israel, the image on the coin was actually a vine representing Israel, was on the coinage of ancient Israel. And Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, when he looked at Herod's temple, this is the way he described it in Antiquities of the Jews. Under the crown work, was spread out a golden vine with branches hanging down from a great height, the largeness and the workmanship of which were an astonishing sight to those who went into the temple. So in our sanctuary and in Herod's temple, the image of the vine, the branch, and the fruit are an oft-found image. There are a lot of Old Testament passages that support this idea of Israel being the vine and, and God being the cultivator, the vine dresser. Listen to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing now of my well-beloved, the Father's the well-beloved, a song of my beloved, the Father, concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug around it, and he removed the stones, and he planted it with the choicest of all vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine, a vat in it, and he expected it, he expected it, Isaiah said, to produce good fruit, good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. Now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me, God says, and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I, have I not done it? Why, I expected it to produce good grapes. Why then did it produce worthless ones? So, now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'm going to remove the hedge from around the outside. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall that it will be trampled down. I will lay it to waste. I won't prune it. I won't hoe it. 
and the briars and the thorns will come up. And I will charge the clouds that they shall not rain on the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. And the men of Judah is delightful plant. For he looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard calls and cries of distress. It's really amazing how similar this Isaiah passage is to John's passage in John 15. So many, so much time and so much different in approach and yet so much the same. In both cases, God in Isaiah and God in John, they're the cultivator. God the Father is the vine dresser in both passages spread out over so many years. And he invests his time pruning, hoping that the, the vineyard will produce delicious, wonderful grapes, but there's nothing in either but, but sour grapes. In fact, he, he closes verse 7 by saying, I look for justice, but I, I found bloodshed. I look for righteousness, but I heard cries of distress. Not just Isaiah, but Jeremiah as well, Jeremiah 2. Yet I planted a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How have you turned yourselves into a degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Same thing in Jeremiah. I, I planted a choice vine, and yet it's going to become a wild grape that's not good or big or delicious or fruitful. In Ezekiel, we're reminded that the only reason the vine exists, just like John 15, the only reason the vine exists is to produce fruit. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 80. Oh God, you did remove a vine out of Egypt. You did drive out the nations. You did plant the vine. You cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and it filled the land. O Lord of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and take care of this vine. Ancient Israel even sang of herself being the vine and God the vine dresser. The Jewish readers, therefore, would have understood that God is the gardener and the people of God are the vine. Yes, Jesus begins John 15 by echoing the words of the prophet and the words of the psalmist, and yet there's a drastic change. Did you notice it? I am the true vine. There's your change. In fact, one of the astonishing things about the person of Jesus is he takes on the role of ancient Israel. Before, God was the gardener, and ancient Israel, the people of God, were the vine. But now, God's still the gardener, but now we have a new vine. Jesus says, I am the vine. Jesus fulfills in his obedience all that Israel failed to fulfill in her disobedience. Yes, the vine dresser is still the father, but the vine now, it's changed. It's no longer Israel but it's the Son, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, in John's gospel, we, we have these I am sayings. In chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. 
Chapter 10, I am the gate. Chapter 10 again, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection, I am the life. And in chapter 15, I am the true vine. Now remember, they've just observed Passover in the upper room and the betrayer Judas has left and now they're walking down in the Kidron Valley and going up the Mount of Olives and as they're walking, they're walking through the countryside filled with vineyards to the left and to the right and even as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, journeying through the vineyard country, Jesus says, I, not these, I'm the true vine. And my father is the true vine dresser. Well, I want us to notice several things about this. First of all, as we abide in Christ, we produce fruit. As we abide, as we stick with Jesus, as we make our home with the Christ, we bear much fruit. The whole purpose of having a vine is that it brings forth fruit. God expected ancient Israel would produce luscious grapes, but instead they were sour and small and rotten, tasteless grapes. He expected righteousness, but instead they were oppressing the people. He expected righteousness. I want you to notice in this passage how many times you, you see the word fruit. As we abide in him, we bear fruit. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Three times in verse 2, fruit, fruit, fruit. Look down at verse 4, bear fruit. Verse 5, much fruit. Verse 8, much fruit. Over and over again. Six times in this passage, we are told that the purpose of sticking with Jesus, abiding in Christ, is that we would bear fruit for his kingdom. We would bear fruit. And he prunes us. He tells us that God prunes us. Look at verse 2. He prunes it that it might bear more fruit. He cuts away the dead wood. He even cuts away some of the life in the vine that the life force in the vine might go, not into producing more leaves, but rather into producing fruit for the kingdom. The Father's pruning knife. You know him, you, you know her. They were so different before the death in their family, the divorce in their family, the hardship, the sickness. In some way, the suffering has made her so much more like Christ. It's, it's almost as if there's the person before and the person after the suffering. It changes us, doesn't it? In fact, he might say to you, Life is so different for me now. I, I saw everything in such a shallow way, and now I see it with a new set of eyes. Through the pruning of the Father, we are made into that vine that will produce through our hardships and our suffering much fruit for the kingdom. The pruning process is 
ever so painful, and yet it causes us to bear fruit for the kingdom. Now, what is this fruit? What are we supposed to bear? He doesn't tell us outright in John 15, but there could hardly be a question coming and echoing from Isaiah. The fruit is Christ's likeness. The fruit is righteousness. And lest we have a question, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. As we abide in Christ, as we stick with Jesus, our lives are more patient, more loving, more kind, more goodness. As we are with Him, we act like Him. That's always true, isn't it? The ones we spend our time with, we even begin to use her language or his language and demeanor, we become like Christ. Now, I've always liked planting things and watching things grow. Some people just like that. I'm not telling you I'm particularly good at it. I just tell you I enjoy it. And, and my mother had a prowess for pruning. I would plant a big, I call a dinner plate hibiscus or some beautiful roses and my mother, really without asking my permission, I'm working through it, seeing a therapist, she would take the pruning shears and she would just chop away at the hibiscus of the rose and I would come home and my big beautiful plant would be nubs, nubs. My mother had a madness in her pruning prowess. It was not like the father here. He doesn't indiscriminately hack away and make us nubs, but rather just a little here and a little there. It might hurt, but he makes us what we need to be that the life force will push up and cause us to bear more fruit. He's a surgeon. My mother was a butcher with the pruning <laughs> shears. In verse 3, he, he switches from the language of pruning to the language of cleansing. That should tell us something, shouldn't it? It's not about cutting away. It's not about horticulture. It's about spiritual maturity, about being righteous, about being clean. Apart from Christ, verse 5, we can do nothing. The opposite of what Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, there's a second thing. Not only are we to, to bear much fruit as we abide in Christ, we are to pray with power. We are to pray with power. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Studies about the power of prayer and medical care are so very numerous. In fact, these kind of studies started all the way back in 1873 with English polymath Francis Galton, and he tried to see if praying made a difference for the patients, and these kinds of studies come around year after year, and well, well, the, the saints want the test to say that prayer really does make a difference, and the skeptics want the test to say that prayer didn't change anything in the hospital. 
I'm not sure about how good these tests really are. By the time you've measured all those things, it's almost an incantation, a magical formula, and not really a prayer, isn't it? The reality is we know that prayer works. The problem is when we get the answer to our prayers, sometimes it's in an unexpected way. God answered ancient Israel's prayer for deliverance from Pharaoh's hand, but when the answer came, it was unexpected, unpredictable, and anything but tame in the person of Moses. God answered the prayers in an unexpected way. And when the people of God cried out again for a Messiah to come to release them from Caesar's grip, well, the answer of God in the person of the rabbi Jesus was simply unacceptable to so many. Well, that's why Jesus tells us when we pray that we are to say, Thy will, O God, be done. Thy will, not my will, but thy will be done. Our obsession about whether prayer works is the wrong kind of obsession. It's actually the wrong question. We know that prayer works as God's people. The question is, are we prepared for the answer that God will bring? When we abide in Christ, we, we pray with power. Now, I want you to think about this. Those who prayed were the ones ready to receive the Messiah in Scripture. Those who were prayers were those who were ready and saw the answer when God delivered it. I think about Anna the prophetess, how she dwelled in the temple and she prayed all the time. And when she saw the baby, the Messiah Jesus, she knew that this was the one. She was glad and she danced and she rejoiced in her prayer life. She was able to see the answer of God and the ordinary infant that everybody else missed that day in the temple. Or, or you think about Paul's ministry when he goes to Philippi. There's a lady named Lydia who's gone down to the river to pray. And this place of prayer and this woman of prayer are the first ones to say, Jesus is Lord in Macedonia because Lydia was a woman of prayer. And when God gave his answer, her eyes were opened. When we pray, abiding in Christ, we can recognize and receive the answers of God for our prayer. Prayer is not so much a doing, but rather prayer is a being. Prayer is an attitude. It's coming into His presence and recognizing His holiness and our total dependency upon Him. Here's the third thing I want you to see. As we abide in Christ, we live lives of obedience. As we abide in Christ, we live lives of obedience. Notice verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So thirdly, as we abide in Christ, we live lives of obedience. Look at me. I abide in my Father's love, and I've kept all my Father's commandments. As you abide in my love, you will be led to obedience. 
as we abide in Christ, we are obedient. You know, sometimes we want to make it really complicated, don't we? The reality is God is still the gardener. Now Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. We abide in the vine. And as we abide in the vine, we bear fruit. And that fruit is righteousness. It is obedience to the commandment of God. It's, it's simple, is it not? As we abide in him, we desire to keep his word. His word dwells in us, and we walk down his path as we hear the Spirit say, this way, this way, my son. Here's the fourth and final thing I want you to see. As we abide in Christ, we have full joy. As we abide in Christ, number four, we have full joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be full in you, and that your joy may be made full. As we abide in Christ, our joy is made full. When do you have most joy? You know, there's an oddity about Americans in particular. We, we don't talk about joy. We talk about happiness. The Western world may chase after happiness, but the people of God, happiness isn't our song. It's, it's a deeper song than that. Our, our song is a song of joy. I think in my own life, when have I had the most joy? I've had the most joy in my life when I've ministered to someone who had no right to expect my ministry. When it wasn't a job, it was simply my seeking to be the presence of Christ as you seek to be the presence of Christ in the hurting of this brother or this sister. In fact, we think about joy when there's no trouble or no suffering. That's not so in Scripture. In fact, in the Gospel of John, only one other time has the word joy been used. But now that we get to the passion here in John, it is used seven times. In this section around the upper room with broken body and spilled blood, that's when John talks about joy. Twice in our verse here in chapter 15. In chapter 16, 20, he says, our sorrow will be turned to joy. In 16, 24, he says, their joy will be made full. In 17, 13, he says, the joy of Jesus is a joy that comes with finished work. If we stick with Jesus, if we abide with him, then we have full joy. His joy complete in us and our joy made full. What are you chasing in life? Happiness comes and goes with the stock market, the wins and losses of your team, the ease of life away from suffering. Or joy, that deepest of all satisfactions of knowing all is well between me and God, even around the upper room in the midst of suffering. Jesus didn't come to make you happy, whatever else a preacher might tell you. He came to give you full joy. 
that last even in the midst of suffering. In Jan Karen's Midford series, a new song, Father Tim stands in the pulpit to those faces that are entrusted to his care for oh so short a while, and he closes his sermon with these words. What some believers still can't believe is that it is God's passion to be as near to us as our next breath. Far more than I want us to have a bigger crowd or a larger parish hall or a more ambitious budget, more than anything as your priest, I pray for each and every one of you to sense the presence of God as close as your next breath. In short, it's been my presence for you since I've been here. For you to have a personal, one-on-one, day-to-day relationship with Christ, something that you can depend in for the rest of your life and then at your death for all eternity. There are legions who believe in the existence of a, a cold and distant God and on occasions they cry out to Him when they're in utter despair and hear nothing in reply and must get up and stumble on alone. And then there are those who know him personally, who found that when they cry out, he is as near as their next breath. One-on-one, heart-to-heart, Savior, Lord, partner, friend. Some have been here in church all their lives, and they have never known that mighty, marvelous, yet simple, personal relationship with Jesus. Others believe that while a personal relationship like that might be possible, it will never be so for them. Why should they bother God except from a great distance away? In reality, we are no bother to God at all. He wants this relationship, this abiding far, far more than you and I wanted. And I pray that each of us will ponder the marvelous truth. Abiding in Christ. I, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. And those who abide in me will bear much fruit. And the Father will prune that we may bear even more fruit. Let us pray. Oh God, help us to be an abiding people, to know that the new vine is found in Christ. We are to abide, to stick with Jesus, to make our home with Him, and in that presence of our Lord, we are to produce righteousness. Kindness, goodness, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. God, maybe there's one this morning who needs to come today and say, I want to be a part of the vine. I want to live like that. I want to bear the fruit. Maybe there are others this morning who realize even in their suffering that God does prune those that he loves, only those that are his. Maybe there are others who would come today and say, this will be my church family, my vineyard, my people, while I will worship and serve. 
the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.